Well, if you have your Bibles, be finding our passage today from Galatians 4 and verse 21. If you did not get a sermon outline, I believe Andy has a group here and uh, would like one. Just raise your hand, Andy will get you one. We're in Galatians 4. And Paul has been preaching the gospel and planting churches. But a group of Jewish leaders have been following him around and adding to his message. They have been saying, yes, uh, Paul preaches Jesus as Messiah, and that's good. Uh, but you also, and there's the rub, isn't it? It's always plus, Jesus plus. He says you also have to be circumcised, keep the Jewish festivals, the Sabbath day, other Jewish particulars. And uh, the Galatians have been drawn back into a kind of Christianity plus Judaism a blend. And Paul, hearing this, is apoplectic. Read Galatians 1 with, as he introduces. So he writes to the Galatians to remind them, and it occurs to him that there is an illustration at hand right in Genesis 16. We've, of course, been going through Genesis. We've come to chapter 16 where Abraham and Sarah have been promised a son, but they've been in the land for 10 years and there's no son, there's no seed. And Sarah comes up with the idea, well, let's have a surrogate mother come in. Use Hagar, my servant. And Abraham quickly agrees, and so they have a son through Hagar, whose name was Ishmael. Except that about 12 years later, Sarah has a son. Now, Sarah at this stage is probably 90 years old, which even then, 90 years old, having a baby. <laughs> it says she laughed when she heard that she was going to have a baby. And uh, a preacher friend, Ron Dunn, used to say, I know Sarah didn't believe that she would have a baby when God told her. 
because if she had believed she was going to have a baby at 90, she wouldn't have laughed, she would have cried. But just as God had promised, Sarah has a son. And Paul takes this as a divine illustration, an allegory. So let's jump in in Galatians 4, beginning in verse 21, and we'll just walk through this and point out five things. Number one, there are two covenants. These women illustrate two covenants. Galatians 4.22, it is written, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, that is, by the natural process of things. But the son of the free, that is, the true uh, wife of Abraham, Sarah, he was born, her son was born by the power of God, the promise of God. In other words, she was too old to conceive, but God kept his promise. And Isaac was a miracle baby, whereas Ishmael was not. So if you have a son, if a husband's 100 years old and a wife's 90 years old and they have a baby, that's kind of getting on the verge of miracle right there. So he says, verse Galatians 4.24, this may be interpreted allegorically, these women are two covenants. So in the Bible, you have two covenants illustrated by Sarah, Abraham's marriage to Sarah, and Abraham's marriage to Hagar. Number two, these marriages produce two lines of descendants the line through Ishmael, the elder brother, and the line through Isaac, the miraculously born son. Galatians 4.22, it is written, Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, one by the free woman. See, these, Jew, these Galatian Jews were coming in, and they were saying, that you have to belong to Abraham, that DNA to Abraham is key, genealogies. They kept genealogies in the temple. And they would say, look, this is what matters. Abraham is our father, John 8, 29. Uh, the Jews said to Jesus, they said, we don't know who you are. We have Abraham as our father. But Paul would say, so did Ishmael. And he's Arab. In other words, your lineage to Abraham means what? Nothing. Point number three. Christians are born like Isaac, not Ishmael, Paul says. Look at Galatians 4.28. Now you brothers are like Isaac, children of promise. As I pointed out at this 
stage she, uh, Sarah's nanny. And Hebrews 11, 11 says she received power to conceive even when she was past the age of childbearing. But Isaac was born supernaturally. So Genesis 21, verse 6, Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham, Sarah will nurse children. See, that's the approach, that's the mark of genuine Christianity. We, he, he says, you brothers, Galatians 4.28, you brothers, these are Gentiles, not Jews. You brothers are born like Isaac. Supernaturally. It's like Sarah said, who would have said you will bring forth a son and nurse him? Who would have thought that? Who would look at you? We'll take Andy for an example and say, who would have thought you'd be a Christian? Right? And this is, this is amazing to people, is that, look, you know, you look at my life and you'd put me at the bottom of the list of possible prospects for God. Who would have thought? Who would have said that? And that is our testimony, you see. That's being born like Isaac, totally uh, unexpected. And uh, by the way, Abraham and Sarah could not have children. She was barren, but she had a child. Isaac and Rebecca, they could not have children. Rebecca was barren. But they did, they prayed to God. Jacob was his son, and he married Rachel. And guess what? Rachel is barren. She can't have a child. So you see, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that line are all barren women, but their children are born supernaturally by the intervention of God. Now, God's making a point here in history. He's saying the line of my people are characterized by a new birth, a powerful intervention of the Holy Spirit, where he brings a conception, and a gestation, and a birth. And it is not something anyone would have thought possible with each of our lives. Christianity isn't just saying, okay, I, I think I'm going to start going to church. It is an intervention of God in our life to rescue us from a life 
of bondage and sin which we could not escape from ourselves. So God is known, Exodus 3.15, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not known as the God of Ishmael and Esau who were born naturally. God wants the message loud and clear. I am the Almighty God, the all-sufficient one. I alone will save you. Beside me there is no other. If I don't do it, no one else will. Here's point number four. The children who are born of the flesh will persecute and mock those who are born by the Spirit. In Galatians 4.29 So just as at that time with Isaac and Ishmael, he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, he persecuted him born according to the Spirit, so it is now. So you go back in, in, in Genesis 21, verse 8, and you'll find that Ishmael persecuted, he mocked, he ridiculed Isaac. The one who is simply a descendant from Abraham by the flesh, he hated those who, that one who was born by the power of God. So he persecuted, he mocked him, he ridiculed him. So it is today, Paul says in Galatians 4.29. Just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him according to the Spirit, so it is now. Paul's saying to these Galatians, these Judaizers are coming in and they are mocking us and our and our Jesus only message and they are persecuting us just like it was with Isaac and Ishmael. Number five. Paul uses the illustration we are to cast out the bondwoman. Who's the bondwoman represent? Who's Hagar represent? The Old Covenant. Think about this. What Paul is saying is, is stretching our minds. Galatians 4.30. What does the scripture say to do with this bondwoman? Hagar and her sons. Cast out the bondwoman with her sons. Galatians 4.30. In other words, the old covenant and her children. Judaism. You must cast it out. You cannot mix Judaism and Christianity, law and grace, old covenant and new covenant. You have to decide if you're going to be saved by Jesus Christ in the new covenant or by some kind of blend and mixture because, because one 
is the old is is Hagar the Egyptian with her son who mocks and persecutes John 1:17 The law was given through Moses but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ See these covenants are not equal Law and grace are not the same. And when Jesus came, he accomplished something so profound that it ended and abolished the old covenant and the person of Moses and his leadership. Let me give you an example. Jesus... uh, a statement he made, but uh, it's about the temple. But listen to, let me tell you something about the temple before I give you the statement. The temple in Jerusalem was the center of the earth. Ezekiel five five says that uh, that Jerusalem was at the center of the earth. Ezekiel five five. Well, at the center of Jerusalem was the temple, which means the temple was at the very epicenter of the entire globe. God put it there as a light in the Old Covenant. It was also the treasury of Israel, the Fort Knox of the nation. Everybody brought their tithes and their offerings to the temple. Well, where'd they put it? There were no banks. So they had rooms in the temple to keep all the offerings and the tithes. It was the place of worship. No other place was permitted to be worshipped. You had to travel to Jerusalem three times a year. And when you prayed, anytime you prayed, you either pray in the temple courts or you pray toward the temple in Jerusalem. Remember Daniel in the Babylon? And it says he opened his windows every day and prayed toward Jerusalem, which is where the temple was. It was the center place, the epicenter. The Jews so revered the temple in the first century that when Emperor Caligula of Rome in 40 AD decided that he would put a statue of himself inside the temple precincts. Well, that didn't go. He had it made and shipped over to the shores of the land of Israel. And 10,000 Roman soldiers were to accompany it into the city. And there they would erect it in the middle of the temple, in the middle of the temple precincts. But Jews began to show up by the thousands. 
they would lay down in the road. They were slaughtered and pulled over. They, and the, the, the parade kept coming. They kept carrying. They kept making their way. Finally, after thousands of Jews were slain and chaos was about to erupt, they made it to the edge of Jerusalem and stopped. Petronius, who was the Roman general, he didn't want to do it. He knew this will ignite the entire nation. They were showing up with tens of thousands, farmers leaving their farms, jeopardizing the economy of the nation to stop this awful blasphemy. So Petronius stopped outside Jerusalem. He hesitated. He waited. Then he thought, I'll write to Caligula, to Caligula, and I'll ask, please don't do this. It will destroy the nation. And he waited for the answer. And he got a good word. Caligula had died. <laughs> and he, Petronius was so happy. But it gives you an illustration. This story in Josephus gives an illustration of how devoted the entire nation was to the temple. Now get this. Hear this. Oh, dear Jesus. This comes from Matthew 12, 6. This was before Petronius and Caligula. And Jesus says this. Matthew 12, 6. I say unto you that in this place... There is one greater than the temple. You got to think about that for a moment. In the context of first century Judaism, when the temple was everything. If there's one greater than the temple, then the temple is nothing. Jesus is saying, I'm the place you bring worship. What? I'm the place you bring your tithe. I'm your storehouse. I'm the place where God dwells. One greater than the temple is here. I imagine the disciples heard that and turned to one another and said, did he just say what I think he said? You see, dear, dear friends, Jesus is not a good man. Jesus is the God man. He's too far outside of a good man. He's the infinite valuable son of God. 
who has had the worship of angels for eternity. And he's greater than the temple. He, he says so. And what an offensive statement in first century Judaism. He's not a prophet as much as he is the very word of God. He doesn't, he's, he doesn't just bring scripture, he is scripture. Acts 13.38 says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything. Freed from everything. You're not just freed from condemnation you're freed from religious effort none of this pleases God what pleases God is when you come to Jesus and you embrace Jesus Christ and he is all and he is everything and ever shall be that pleases God he is all my temple he's all my sacrifices he's all my festivals he's all my rituals he's all my pilgrimages He's all my uh, shedding of blood. Everything is Jesus Christ and Him and Him alone. You're freed from everything, Acts 13, 38 says, from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now this doesn't mean we can't learn from the Old Testament the right vocabulary, holy history, accurately given, amazing prophecies. We have examples in the Old Testament for teaching, training in righteousness that makes us sufficient to every good work. But we are free from it all as a way of being made right with God. That's the way we're free. We're free from it in terms of it making us right with God. Hebrews 10, 19 puts it this way. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain which is his flesh. It's a new and living way that we now approach God through Jesus Christ. When we come to the end of life, having tried all during life to forget, we come to remember our regrets, our failures. When we know you have a few days maybe to live, we think of all the things 
we have said that have hurt people and can't be unsaid? Things we should have done but did not do? Oh, the heaviness of our sins that weigh down upon us. But listen to this, dear friend. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now listen, the sting of death is sin. You see, the sting of death is sin. It's sin that's going to make death hurt so bad. If you never sin, death is a breeze. But it's the fear, it's the regret, the sting of death is sin. It's all going to rush in upon us. The devil will see to it. Amen? Oh, he'll make sure you remember everything you've done that you shouldn't have done. And everything you didn't do that you should have should have took, taken care of, he's going to bring it to your attention. But now listen to it. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. But the power of sin is the law. Oh. But what if you're not under the law? What if the law was accomplished in Christ? What if the law was paid in full? And you emerged from the law. The power of sin is the law. If the sting of death is sin, but the power of sin is the law, and there's no law removed if the law is taken away, then sin in death has lost its sting, has lost its power. That's why this is important. Folks, this is what you have to die on. This will, this will stand you good when you cross the Jordan. So he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I tell the devil, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I'm not under the law. So you can bring up a sin, but it doesn't, doesn't relate to me because sin's a violation of law. If there's no law, there's no sin, and therefore there's no condemnation. Therefore, I'm not afraid of you, nor am I afraid of the grave. Thanks be unto God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful and incredible message that we have in the gospel of Christ. Let's bow together for prayer.